Welcome to my podcast. Podtunes is the perfect way to fall asleep while listening to the best horror, history, and true crime stories. This podcast is presented by Bed Temporis, bedtime stories that will keep you up at night. If you want to hear your story featured on my podcast, email me at mypodtune at gmail.com. That's spelled M-Y-P-O-D-T-U ne at gmail.com this episode involves a fictional scary story submitted by a loyal listener the program was year-round and she'd been in his class for the summer the season itself became synonymous with her presence and he had enjoyed going to work for a time knowing she'd be there there were days especially in the morning when the ghost of the summer's past had haunted him pleasantly with the smell of cut grass or the sound of sprinklers And when he had arrived, earlier than most of his colleagues, because of his long commute, often she was already sitting there, sitting on the floor in the academics building besides his locked classroom door in the empty hallway. The building was more than 80 years old, and the program was a last resort for at-risk students and teachers. His accumulated failures had brought him here, but she had redeemed them. She was his consolation. She was a hidden treasure of knowledge and perception buried in obscurity. Though aloof, she had opened up to him, and her trust was better than all he had lost. When she graduated, she'd been the one to suggest they exchange information. Three weeks after she left, he had already sent two emails, to which she hadn't received responded. He pined after her in despair and wanting, yet he balked at calling her cell phone, invoking that final intimacy pocketed against her thigh. If she didn't answer or return his call, he would know it was over, and he wasn't ready to live without hope. The weeks passed. He sent no more emails, rationing them out. He knew what a transient bit of information a mobile phone number could be, but still, he didn't call. She called him. The phone in his classroom rang. It was the double pulse signaling an outside call. He answered unwittingly, giving his name and identifying the institution. It was her. I'm sorry to call you at work. Can you talk? It really wouldn't matter if he couldn't have, but it was his prep period and no students were soliciting his help and the pesky teacher down the hall who would always interrupted their conversation hadn't stopped by to chat. I lost your phone number, she said. I called the call center. They transferred me. They caught up. Before ringing off, he agreed to be a reference for a job she was applying for, and she asked him to help her sister. He agreed to do this, too. She thanked him for the emails. Marisol had never been his student. He only knew her tangently through her sister. He saw her occasionally in the hallway outside his class, as it was adjacent to the only female restroom on the second floor. He nodded to her. She smiled. The two sisters shared a remarkable mixture of biracial genes. They were tall and athletic. Marisol was three years younger than her sister still possessing an adolescent evenness, whereas her sister had begun to accumulate supple layers of fat and had decidedly become a woman. He was standing outside the door during a break between classes. The hallway was busy and he exchanged greetings and gave reminders to passing students. Mirasol appeared around the corner in a nod of students heading for the restroom. He ducked into his classroom, took $200 from his wallet, secreted it into an unaddressed envelope, and slipped it between the pages of a paperback book. She was already by him when he re 
emerged, and he had to follow her, calling her name. She turned halfway through the restroom door, holding up the line. He slipped his arm between the intervening bodies and passed the paper back to her. She took it with a nonplussed expression on her face. He spent the rest of the day and well into the night in fear that he had misunderstood the whole thing. His car had broken down and he was taking public transportation to work while it was being repaired. It was early October and not yet cold and the walk from the bus stop was a welcome to his day. The leaves of the trees on campus were starting to change. He was walking across the grass of the soccer field towards the academics building after checking in at the gate when he saw Mirasol from a great distance. He hadn't seen her since giving her the money. She was coming from the dorms and appeared to be heading towards the transportation department for an off-center appointment. She was looking down at her phone and he watched her openly for a long time as the distance between them closed, wondering what to say. He looked away as their courses were set to intersect and he didn't want to be caught staring. Suddenly, his stomach rolled. There was a sharp pain in his ear and he became dizzy. He put his hands on his knees to keep his balance. His his chest hurt and his whole body went cold. He threw up dry heaves. The sockets of his eyes ached with the pain boring into the optic nerve. This is what it must feel like, he thought. Then he realized it wasn't transitory pain. It was despair and dread. It was enmity. He was about to abandon consciousness when he remembered Marisol. Through an effort of will, he arrested the tunnel vision that was contracting around him and forced his way out. After a moment, he looked up, but she wasn't there. All through the soccer field and behind him, she was gone. He bought a bag of candy for Halloween on the way home from work, but nobody knocked on his apartment door. The next evening, he nodded off on the couch in the blue flicker of the television. The rusty sound of the doorbell woke him. He hadn't heard it since he had absently tested it himself when moving in. He opened the door and there were about a dozen children crowded around the entrance. They stretched out their hands to him. He collected the unused bag of candy and tore it open. What are you? He said asking. I could have been a dancer. He asked the others, his voice hoarse from sleeping. I could have been a fireman. I could have been an artist. I could have been a fool. I could have been... A whore. He was losing track of their answers. He was still a bit groggy. The costumes they were wearing didn't seem to be costumes, but dirty rags, faces made up as corpses. He peered into the darkness beyond them for a chaperone. He looked through the peephole after closing the door. The children appeared distorted as if in a convex mirror, their faces very close and wide. He locked the door slowly to silence the mechanism. In the tense quiet, he flinched when a newborn began crying in an adjacent unit. The kitchen was part of the living room in his one-bedroom apartment at a down complex. He put the bag of candy on the counter. In the glow of the microwave's digital clock, he saw that it was after midnight. He crept back to the peephole. The children were still there, looking at him as if in reverse. He retreated back to the kitchen. There was a calendar taped to the inside of the pantry door, and he checked to see if he had made a mistake. It was indeed November, now the second. In the square of the date, it read, All Souls Day. The newborn cried on. You can leave early, his boss said, stepping in. From his second-story window, he could see a wall of darkness coming in from the northeast. It was early afternoon, yet the world was divided into light and dark. They're calling it Snowmageddon. Classes had been dismissed early. The wind blew warm, preceding the storm, and he opened his window to let it in. He lived 40 miles south of the center in the squalid apartment, but he wasn't worried about beating the storm home. He was worried about the commute the next morning. He'd have to leave at 4 a.m. and get up even earlier. 
earlier, it occurred to him that there were restrooms in the building, vending machines, and a couch in the teacher's lounge. It also occurred to him that he would never be allowed to stay in the building overnight, so he didn't ask. The parking lot emptied, but for his own car. From the window of his classroom, he could see the tattered autumn leaves that had never been collected flying in the wind. Harried as they were, some even reached his window ledge, drifting inside. He saw a family of cats retreat into one of the overgrown evergreen shrubs that surrounded the academics building. Suddenly, and for half an hour, the quality of light in the air was very yellow. The sky darkened with bruised clouds. The atmosphere itself seemed to vibrate with an impending storm. The wind got cold. It started to rain. Students were running from dinner in the cafeteria back to their dorms, hunkering down. He closed the window and the wind buffeted the old wooden casements. They had been through the time change and it was already dark outside. He turned back to his room. Never the most efficient of teachers, he was further behind than usual with his reports and files due to a strange feeling of being out of sync with everything that concerned everyone else. He attributed it to, and it seemed to originate from, the funk he was in after Mirasol's sister had left. The grace period for such negligence was passing. He turned the lights off in his classroom so as to not to raise the attention of campus security and worked by the light of his computer monitor. He created three lesson plans and organized several others. He cleared his inbox and his desk and his emails. He recorded grades in his student binder and completed a case note on each of his students in the computer system. It had been snowing heavily, and when he shut down his computer, his room was bathed in a ghostly light from all the white outside. The wind had stopped, and the flakes of snow were falling straight to the ground in an endless, though staggered, columns quilting a thick blanket on everything. He went to the break room and got a candy bar and a bottle of soda. The absence of students in the hallways and the silence of the classrooms gave him a pleasantly eerie sensation. Outside the academic office, there was a box for the lost and found. He fished out a couple of jackets and a hoodie. There was even a plush blanket. The lights had shut off, and he took all his items with him to the teacher's lounge through the dimly lit hallways, illuminated by the green of the exit signs. He unlocked the lounge and made his bed on the vinyl couch from the stale-smelling articles he had collected. The room was windowless, and he sat at a round table in the dark, eating his snacks. His eyes were sore, and he had a mild headache from all the sorting and filing, and when he laid down amongst the lost and Found, he grew drowsy in their faint reek of body odor and cigarette smell. The armrests of the couch were low, and he had his head on one and his ankles on the other. The silence was thick with the falling snow insulating everything and no baby crying in the next unit. When he woke up, he had a pee. He flipped on the light for a searing moment. The clock in the teacher's lounge read 3 a.m. and change, though it could be unreliable. He'd be getting up about now to get ready for work and the white knuckle commute if he'd gone home. He had found the couch's sweet spot and was basking in the contemplation, the luxury, of four more hours of recumbency. He went downstairs in his stocking feet to unlock the staff room, but found it already unlocked. The large frosted glass of the windows let in more of the pale illumination from outside. One of the windows was open a few inches for ventilation. It had been open like that all the years he had worked at the program. The bottom of the screen was cut, and over the summer he had observed a line of ivy worming its way in. Now, as he addressed the urinal, the cold air seemed to be seeping in like water over the windowsill, chilling his toes. A bump and giggle came from one of the toilet stalls. It gave him 
must start arresting his flow. He calmed and realized for all parties involved, it might be best if he just finished and got out. He had heard stories about how permeable the old academics building was, and here were the open window and slash screen right next to him. It was rumored to be a rendezvous for students making trysts after hours. He didn't bother washing up, but dashed out immediately. The sight that confronted him was astonishing. Although the twilight hallway students were coupling and in trios or masturbating alone, there were students from the past and present, students who had been expelled and graduated. Those who knew him said hello, disregarding the lewd activity they were engaged in. He made for the stairwell, and there were more students than there, secreted in corners. Engaged in all manner of lasciviousness, he took the stairs two at a time, and when he burst onto the second floor, they were there too. They were in every hallway. At an intersection he came upon a brutal gang rape, yet all gave him a greeting, even the victim. He made his way through, seeking the safety of the teacher's lounge, locked and forbidden to students, holy ground. Alas, when he rounded the last corner, standing adjacent to the lounge was Mirasol. She was leaning against the wall, back arched. Another student was kneeling between her legs. Her head was tilted back in ecstasy, and she rolled it towards him. Hey, mister. She said, looking at him over her cheekbones. Thanks for the money. He made for his classroom. It was his only hope. When he had locked himself in, he found all of his work undone. There were piles of papers everywhere. His desk was buried, the trash cans overflowing, the whole room a disorganized mess. He applied himself to setting it right with a mighty effort, but he was stymied in every instance. The room itself seemed to be making more generating the chaos and disorder. After what seemed like several hours, he sat down to work at his computer but accidentally locked himself out of the system, unable to enter his password correctly. He set to it organizing his desk. In one of the drawers, there was a cache of yet more papers. He took them up for sorting. There was a knock at the door. He froze in silence. He knew it was campus security and he debated on whether to give himself up. Hello? It was her voice. Can I come in? It was Mirasol's sister. The profound impossibility of her presence didn't even occur to him. He opened the door. She wasn't there. Outside were the children, still with outstretched hands. They were badly decomposed now. I don't have anything for you, he said. He closed the door and sat on the floor, leaning against it, a barricade. The papers he had gotten out of his desk, they were hers. Somehow he had missed them, forgotten them, all this time. He paged through them, biology packets she had asked for help with. They had stayed after school, looking up the answers on the internet. She had gotten low marks nonetheless. They had her redo some of them for credit. She had laughed at his ignorance, scalding him. After a while, he got up, opened the door, and walked the tiled floors throughout the second story of the academics building. Empty but for the illumination of the green exit signs at every corner and intersection and stairwell. He compassed a circuit and turned it again and again, yearning for her and the pass until the first of his colleagues arrived, stamping the snow from their feet. With a long commute, he typically missed his neighbors, leaving before them, arriving after them, in the dark for much of the year. But after a Saturday morning running errands, he saw his immediate neighbor pull into the lot behind him. He went to check his mail and lingered, hoping to avoid contact. When a suitable amount of time had passed, he ventured forth. It was to no avail. They reached the alcove and their respective doors, separated by mere inches simultaneously, and began to address the locks in awkward silence. How's the baby? He ventured. His neighbor didn't respond. Perversely, he asked again. Baby? His neighbor said. I ain't got no baby. He swore and laughed derisively before letting himself in. You think I'd live here with a family?
He knew the unit above was unoccupied, and he himself was on the bottom corner. Where was it coming from, the crying? He stayed up that night, but fell asleep waiting for it. She called him at home, apropos of nothing. It was February, and the world seemed like it had been paused in winter for a long time. He had sent her an email around Christmas, though he knew she didn't celebrate holidays, and that she hadn't responded. Likewise, to no response, he had sent her an email on her birthday, though she did not recognize birthdays either. It was a Wednesday evening around 8.30 when she called. She wanted neither favor nor the use of his name. They talked for six and a half hours. Thanks for the emails, she said. I know I don't respond, but they mean a lot to me, to know that you're thinking of me. Once again, she had reclaimed his life. There was nothing left to hope for or want. What was the money for, if you don't mind me asking? Of course not. Marisol got into some trouble out there with a boy. She needed to terminate the pregnancy. She told me to thank you. They would have sent her home. Oh. He said. The crying began when the call ended. No baby, my ass. He said. He put a cup to the wall, but the sound was distinctly muted. He dashed into the bedroom, put the cup there. It was the apartment behind his own, inhabitants unknown, but it wasn't coming from there either. He had been talking on the phone in the dark, and he turned on the lights of every switch he passed. He went into the bathroom, plunged the water out of the toilet. He listened through the pipes for the third floor. It was something he had seen on TV. Nothing. Yet still, the crying continued. It was a ragged cry, not of hunger or weariness or a soiled diaper, a cry of pain. It became hoarse and thin and dry as it prolonged. Suddenly, he snapped his fingers and said, Good man! There was a piece of sheetrock missing from Anne, a boarded hallway off the bathroom below the washer and dryer attachments. He got down on his knees, doubling over. He put his ear to the gap in the drywall, revealing the crowded veins of pipes and wires. He covered his opposite ear to get a better fix on the crying as if forming a sonogram of another world. The sound got louder. He sat up on his haunches, cupped his other ear as well. It was coming from inside his head, the crying. He hadn't seen Marisol for a long time. She was taking classes at an off-center site. They had closed for spring break, but the program had not. A room on the second floor of the academics building was repurposed temporarily to accommodate the students who were back on center while their classes were dismissed. He had seen her in the hallways, not in the dreary school uniform, but in light and colorful dresses, pleasantly reeking of spring and the world outside beyond the confines of the campus. The room was between two hallways and windowless like the teacher's lounge. The carpet was a color of dust and raveling in spots. There were shelves filled with outdated textbooks. A long, narrow table against the wall had a collection of antiquated PCs. There was an old teacher's desk, abandoned, and two large wooden tables with sturdy wooden chairs, as if for dining. He looked on his prep period. The off-center students sat at the tables, enjoying their phones, one playing a video game on a laptop. He exchanged greetings with Marisol in semi-privacy, as the other students had their headphones in and the door to the room closed by itself. I'm leaving next week. Could you take something to your sister for me? He asked, having come across a few paperback copies of her favorite author. I'm not going home. I'm going to stay with a friend out here. I see, he said. He was going to ask her how she was doing, if she was okay. How did she feel? But she was so clearly fine, better than, joyful in the first flush of her new plans, that he merely said goodbye. It was light again in the evenings when he got home from work, and warm. But the nights were difficult at the squalor department. The crying was ceaseless, and his doorbells rang at odd hours. He knew it was them, with their outstretched hands, needing an answer, didn't look through the people. He had no other visitors. He fell further behind in his paperwork at the program, was written up, lost touch with his students.
He rationed out his emails and bided his time, waiting till Mirasol's sister would call again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Podtoons. Podtoons is updated on a weekly basis, so be sure to tune in next week.